How many of you knew that Houston is the prime place for human trafficking? How many of you knew that? Probably were aware of that just with the Super Bowl coming here recently. Well, when I first learned that a couple of years ago, um, I remember, well, first of all, we, we kind of responded as the ministry was really cool. We did an event called Abolish uh, a few years ago to try to bring in uh, partners, ministries that were working against that, and we partnered with them. It was really cool. But I remember when I first heard that thought and it began to make sense, like I, I grasp it. You know, sometimes you hear something, you don't really think about it, and then it sinks in and all of a sudden you, you get it. When I got it, I got mad, obviously. I was upset. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to get a group of guys, and no one's going to know about this, but I'm going to get a group of guys, and we're just going to go on secret raids at night, and we're going to bust in these places. We're going to knock these fools out, and we're going to rescue all of these girls. And I know it sounds kind of funny, but the reality is I was genuinely serious. I thought, man, if, if we, so they used to tell me that you could go, and I think you still can, you can go on tours in Houston, and they will show you where the different places are. And I remember just, are you kidding me? Like, how do we know where they're at and we still can't do something about it? And so that bothered me so much. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna get some guys together, gonna go to raid. Now, we didn't do that because I talked to one of my police buddies and uh, told me that wasn't a good idea. But the main thing was that he said, if you go in there, and even if you did, even if you did rescue a few of them, the ones that you weren't able to get a hold of, those guys are just gonna beat them even more, if not maybe kill them. And I remember just thinking, oh, what a, that's, I don't even, I don't know what to do. So then we created Abolish and we did an event to try to do something. But my point with all that is, when I think about that, my response was, I wanted to go in with power and with strength. I wanted to kick in the door Knock a few guys out, because that would kind of be fun knowing what they did, but knock them out, but more importantly, save these women, these children, whoever, and bring them out. I wanted to use power and strength, and that's typically how humans respond, especially guys. We want to do things with power and with strength. When we have a plan, when we need something to be accomplished, we want to go in strong, and we will go in hard, and we want to make sure it gets done, but the reality is that's not how our God works. He can and at times he might, but our God, his power is perfected in weakness. He operates differently. In fact, it's one of the ways we can see God's true sovereign hand, his true providence, because when he wants a master plan to unfold, he doesn't have to come in with power and just kill everybody, though he could if he wanted to, but he can take even a little baby and flip the whole plan upside down. 2 Corinthians tells us that God's power is perfected in weakness. How marvelous is that? How crazy is that? And that's what we're watching unfold right now in Exodus. We're watching as, as a decree, an edict has been sent out that all the, the baby boys that are born, all the Hebrew boys would be thrown into the Nile, that they would be killed so that the, the Pharaoh could just eliminate this growing population of Hebrews that he just wants to get rid of. And then as he moves in with power, God's gonna move his sovereign and providential hand and he's gonna move in weakness. But in the weakness of a little baby, in the humility of a little baby, we will see this master plan unfold. It's such a cool, beautiful story. And this is what we're watching. So Exodus 2 
We've now moved into chapter two, which is really exciting. We're gonna get through 10 verses tonight, Lord willing. So let us begin. We know, author, we know the author is Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. We also call them the Pentateuch. You can think of it, if you like movies, if you like Star Wars, anybody? That's probably, the, that's probably the first ever Star Wars thing I've ever done. I'll probably be the last, but it does help us with this. If you like movies like that, that have multiple segments, multiple books, multiple movies, think of, think of Genesis through Deuteronomy kind of like that. It's, it's five books, but it's really one big story that's unfolding over a long period of time. Was that pretty good, Star Wars fans? It doesn't even matter. Just, just keep rolling with it, okay? All right, so, so what's taking place? Well, you remember all the way back in the beginning, in Genesis, what happened? God created the earth, blah, blah, blah. But then man entered in sin by one wrong move. And at the moment that sin was brought into the world, everything was broken apart, and now man was now separated from God. Why were they separate? Because God had a perfect plan, a perfect paradise. Everything was beautiful, gorgeous, and set, and then man destroyed it. And from that moment on, there has been separation between God and man. That's what happened in the early parts of Genesis. From that moment on, people have been waiting, looking, hoping believing that something could take place that could fix this problem. And God's begun a master plan to redeem his people, and it's gonna come through the people of Israel who are the main focus of the book of Exodus. We'll call them Hebrews, we'll call them Israelites, we'll call them the people of Israel. At some point, we may even call them God's chosen people. It's all the same group of people, just given different parts of their background. And so they're the focus of our story, and our story has been fascinating as we've watched God's hand work. It started in the beginning, and sin entered in, and then came a man named Abraham, and God promised through you, even at your old age, that I'm going to bring all these nations. It's gonna be an incredible thing. And then he had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids, and we ended up with Joseph. And Joseph was right at the end of Genesis, and Joseph made a way to not only save the people of God, but to move them into Egypt to, to free them from the drought and all the things that they were struggling with. And so Joseph made a way. Now here are the people, but Joseph passes away. And so now the Pharaoh that's in charge, he's kind of chosen to forget Joseph and all the great things he did, and he's ready to get rid of these people, the people of God, because there's just too many of them, and it threatens him. By the way, it's interesting, if you, if you serve in any kind of leadership capacity, one of the things that probably is the most uh, dangerous thing to a leader is the idea that the people that are supposed to be following you aren't following you. And for Pharaoh, he began to look out at this group of people and he realized there were more of them than there were of his own people. And he's supposed to be the king, he's supposed to be the leader, he's supposed to be in charge, and he looks around and he says, all of these people, not only are they not really following, of course they're doing what we're saying because we're making them, but not only are they following us, they haven't even integrated into the people, they've stayed separate the whole time because they've been slaves. Another beautiful picture for us that we are in the world but not of the world, that even in the midst of all the darkness, we still fight to stay separate because we are the people of God. And so now we enter into a moment where a baby's going to be born. Here's the verse you need to hear just so that you can make sure you understand where we're at. In chapter one, verse 22, this sets the stage, the backdrop, if you will, for where we're going. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, 
but you shall let every daughter live. So that's the backdrop. That's the edict that just went out. So all the babies that are Hebrew, that are boys, they're going to be thrown into the Nile, okay? Now we pick up. Here we go, verse one. It says, now a man from the house of Levi, stop, right there, super important, super powerful, but we'll talk about it in many, many weeks, okay? So just remember that later on. It's gonna come back later. You'll probably still forget, but don't worry about it. Just roll with me. Here we go. So a man in the house of Levi, again, very important, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Okay, let's pause. A lot's happening. First, these two people get together. They have a baby, Okay, they're both from the tribe of Levi. Just remember that for later. They have a baby. Now, what happened with the baby? Because it was a boy. What was supposed to happen? Test. Yeah, they were supposed to throw him in the Nile. That was the, the new law that had been passed, that if you have a baby boy and you're a Hebrew, that child goes into the Nile. How fun is that, right? How exciting. No, that's sick. That's disgusting. But that's the story. But yet, what happens? They have a child and they see that he is fine, so the mom, she hid him for three months. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. First of all, they have a baby, they see that the baby is fine, so they choose to hide him for three months. Now there's some debate over this, and we just don't have time for it, but some debate over why did they decide to do this? Were they able to see, did maybe God speak to them and tell them the plan that was gonna happen with this child when he was born, so that's how they knew? Or maybe they looked at the child and genuinely he was actually beautiful or gorgeous or whatever word you might wanna use, and when they looked at him, they saw something unique, and because of that, they responded. Now, here's the thing. The first one is, is good, that makes sense, that's fine. If that was the case, maybe God spoke to them and revealed it. But if that didn't happen, and they just looked at the child and the child was beautiful, and that was all they needed to keep the child, that's kinda of weird to me. Because what if you have a baby that's not beautiful? Do you throw him in the Nile? So there's some debate as to where it could be. Here's what I think. I think it's simple. I think they had a baby. They looked at that baby, and just like God looks at every one of us, they saw that it's a baby, and a baby is a good thing. And so they kept it. Now, don't get all excited. Don't go out and say, oh, Chad told me what's up. This is how it is, and fight everybody that doesn't agree with that because it doesn't matter, and we don't care. The reality is that is true. Every baby is special to God. So they look down, they see this child, and they decide they're going to keep this baby. It's also kind of interesting that, you know, God could have, again, come in with power. He could have raised up an army. They could have gone to war. They could have overthrown Pharaoh somehow, some way. Yet God doesn't do that. He doesn't start to change history with a battle. He starts with a baby. With the smallest, weakest, most humble thing you could. The power of God perfected in the weakness of a child. What a marvelous thought. So here comes this little bit, and, and we don't, we don't think about babies as being impacts down the road. They're just little cute, cuddly little things and they throw up sometimes and they do this and sometimes they cry and sometimes they... But a baby, listen, don't, don't miss this. Forget the baby, let's focus on you for a second. Everything you have gone through has got you to this point and everything you will go through is going to get you to the next point. Now our past doesn't have to define our future but it definitely helps to shape it. Some of us grew up in homes that were fantastic, and it was great, and it has shaped you and molded you and created you and who you're supposed to be. Some of us grew up in homes that were horrific. 
Some of us have experienced things that are horrific. Listen, our past doesn't have to define our future, but absolutely don't miss this. It's going to shape part of it. And so what we've got to look at is with God's providential hand, God's hand that works all things out for good, Romans 8, 28, that God looks down and says, all that you're going through, I'm going to use that to navigate you to a certain place. It's important that you get that. Because so many people spend so much time being angry about their past and the things that they went through. And I just can't believe this happened. Why would God let this happen? Or they got all these things. And the reality is not everything's great. And we get that. But God, but God in the midst of all of that can take all of it and use it for his glory if we will allow him. So everything you've gone through, every challenge, every great thing, every good parent you had, every bad parent you had, every no parent that you had, it was all part of shaping you. The question is, did you allow it to have its full effect? Do you allow yourself to move through that or are you stuck in the past because you can't get over what happened to you? Now, I don't wanna be too harsh because I know some things are just horrific and I get that, I totally get that. So please don't take that as insensitive. But remember that what God has in store comes through the shaping of the things we've experienced and guess what? This is Moses' story as well. He's on a journey, and it's a wild one. So they see this baby. They bring this child in. And then verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister, he had most like a brother and a sister, the best we can tell that we're older. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Okay, so let's pause. First, let's look at this. It says that she put him in a basket. Okay, now this basket is most likely, okay, just like Noah's Ark, all right? When we think of Noah's Ark, we think of like this really big bow with a pointy tip because that's modern culture. But it wasn't. It was, it was more than likely just a box, a big box, but it was a box. But do you remember what they used when we studied Noah? It was a while ago now, so some of you may not remember. Do you remember what they used to seal up the wood that created the ark? It was pitch. Cool. So they used the same thing. Mama used the same thing as Noah used on the ark to seal up those little pieces of wood to create that box so that Moses, or the baby, but Moses, we know later on, will go in the box and could be safe. Cool parallel. And then it says, she put him on the riverbank. Now the river is the Nile because the Nile is what's they were just talking about throwing the babies in, right? The Nile is a massive part of this. Here's the thing about the Nile. The Nile, it, when you think of a river and you think about Moses, and when you think about any movie you might have seen or any picture of Moses in the Nile, you usually see like a really peaceful water and he probably floated down just beautifully. Nah, bro, nah. Go look up the Nile. The Nile pumps 700,000 gallons of water a second. Now, I don't know if that's smooth. Maybe that is, I don't really, that doesn't sound smooth to me. That sounds crazy. The Nile is the second longest river in the entire world, and it's only be, uh, shorter than the first one by, by basically nothing. It, it's right there. The Nile was a huge river. Now, we don't want to get carried away because the reality is it says the river 
bank. And so most likely as the Nile got closer to the edge, it did tend to calm down. And so this would have been realistic that she could have put this child in this basket, close it up and send it down and hope that it might make it there. But the reality is the Nile was not some safe place. By just putting it in the basket with a little bit of pitch didn't guarantee this child was going to make it. This was still incredible faith that they had to have to move through this situation. But there's the reality. So here's this little box. She puts it in. And I also think it's interesting. We don't want to read into stuff too much because I think you can get, you can get in dangerous places when you do this. But here's something that's interesting. Watch this. Let, don't turn here. Just listen. Two verses. Hebrews eleven twenty three. Just listen. By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Follow that away for a second. Acts 7, 18. This is Stephen talking. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, he dealt shrewdly with our race, talking about the time we're reading right now. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her son. As her son. Did you notice what wasn't in there? What wasn't in there? The river! I didn't mean to yell at you. I just got excited. <laughs> the river. Three months, three months. That's where the faith that they were highlighting was, but not the river. Now, again, we don't want to read into too much because we're not saying that she was like, all right, that's it. We're throwing our kid out there. She put him in a basket. She put a pitch in there. She was careful to try to give him the best chance to live. But the reality is their faith was in the first three months because for three months, you got, listen, here's the thing. I'm a father, so I think I can speak to this, all right? And I have a wife. This is more about her than me, but we'll set it up now. There's this thing, there's this thing that moms have that no one else on the planet has, and it's this attribute that's not even scientific, but maybe it will be after I say this tonight. It's called mama bear. You ever heard of this? You ever seen this? If you stand in front of this? You done. That's good. She knows what's going on. That's... Mama bear is when a mom that has a kid, you got that too, when a mom goes psychotic because somebody jacked with her kid. When it's not just any crazy woman, because that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a sane, peaceful woman like my beautiful wife, Sarah. See how I did that? That was good. When a sane, peaceful woman all of a sudden loses her mind because someone jacked with her kid. Don't do it. Yeah, don't. Even the dads know, like, you're on your own. Have fun. See you later. I, don't, I didn't do that. They'll look at you like, are you going to do something? Like that? No, I'm going to watch you go down because that's your own fault. There's just this trigger. It's probably God-wired. I don't know if it's scientific, but it is what it is. There's this thing that moms just have that they protect their kids, they take care of their kids, they love their kids. I know not every mom is perfect, and I understand that there are some situations that this isn't true, but the majority of women, when you have a child, there's just something inside that if it ever happens, it's like this safety mechanism that goes in to protect your kid. Now, why am I saying all that? Because I just have a hard time believing the Hebrews were throwing their kids in the water. 
I just, I just have a hard time. Now, again, that's not, that's not biblical, so don't run with that and write a book on it. I'm just saying that, to me, I just don't see that happening. I don't see it. So what that means is most likely there were people checking. When the king made that edict, everybody was a part of it, whether they wanted to be or not. And so that meant they might, they might have even been kicking indoors. We won't go that far, but they were checking. And when they saw the woman was pregnant, you better believe they were watching her like a hawk, waiting for the moment when that child would be born to make sure that child went where it belonged, in the Nile, as sick as that sounds. So for three months, they hid their kid. That ain't hard. It, it is hard to hide a kid. It's hard to hide a kid in plain sight because they're loud. And they don't, you tell them not to cry, and they cry louder. It's like they don't, they just do the opposite. They don't understand. So for three months is a true miracle grace of God that they were able to do that. But after three months, she finally just hit, she couldn't do it anymore. Couldn't, couldn't hide the kid anymore. What are you going to do? Eventually the kid's got to grow up. The kid can't live in the home forever. And so that's the moment that they hit. So she puts her child in the basket, hoping for the best, and sends the sister down the bank a little, most likely because mom couldn't watch. I mean, could you imagine finally getting to this point where you have to take your own flesh and butter, put it in a basket, even though maybe it'll make it, but you don't know what's gonna happen at the end of the story. You're just dropping the kid down the Nile, praying God will do some miraculous thing. So she sends a sister down in hopes that she could maybe just maybe see what happens, but mom most likely couldn't look. Then verse five, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This is fascinating. The princess, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, steps outside doing whatever she's doing and happens to look up and sees this basket floating in the water. God's providential hand, how crazy. Now, this is the last place they probably wanted him to go, right? This is the house where the edict came from, or at least an offshoot, because this is a daughter. Who knows if she lived at home or if she had grown up and moved, I don't know. But the reality is she, she had to, Pharaoh made this edict, kill all the babies, and he probably never touched one of them. Kings typically make law and then they wash their hands and they let other people deal with it. And they sit in their little palace on their, th- I don't know if he sat on a throne, but whatever. But now his daughter comes face to face with the reality. Because guess what? Just because she was a princess doesn't mean she could do whatever she wanted. She had to follow that same edict. She would have been required to do the same thing. Yet dad's sin is now standing face to face with the daughter. And she gets to make a choice. The other thing we gotta look at Pharaoh focused on who? Who is he trying to kill? The sons, right? And guess what? The daughters are gonna be the death of him. How cool is that? Now, ladies, let me use this as an offshoot to just let you know. Number one, in biblical time, they just didn't know the power that you had. Amen, can I get amen? You got amen, you're welcome. That's my one for the six months. I ain't gotta do that again, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. They didn't get that women have power. But, but, let me tell you, don't miss this. God works in those little details. God works with people that you may not think could make a difference, and he does. Here's some names for you to think about. That started as just regular old people that who would have thought something would have happened? Duck Dynasty. 
have thought. If you had told me beforehand that's going to happen, I told you you were crazy. And I probably would have bet you, even though that's totally wrong. I probably still would have done it. I wouldn't, actually. But you get the point. Duck Dynasty. Yeah, look what God has done with the duck call. Are you kidding me? If you're scouting your team, going, who's available to put on my team for the kingdom, to build the kingdom, you ain't getting the guys with the beard. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Yet look what, don't be offended, but you need to shave. It's okay. But look, <laughs> look what God was able to do. Are you kidding me? Amen. How about Tim Tebow? Good athlete. Let's be honest. Wasn't, wasn't the greatest and that proved by just how his career played out. But he was a good athlete that worked hard. But look at the impact he's made far beyond just his short time in sports. I mean, the list goes on and on. I had one more. I oh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. I had to look this one up. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know a whole lot about him. All they do is remodel homes in Waco. Sorry, babe. She went to Baylor. You remodel homes and you do a good job. So does everybody else. But yet, look what God can do when a couple decides to stand boldly for their faith, yet take the craft and the skills God's given them. These little people that you wouldn't have picked on your team if you didn't know what they were going to do, yet look what can happen when people open themselves up for God. See, sometimes we look at ourselves and we just go, oh, I'm just, oh, I'm never going to do anything great. Well, look what could happen. Now, what's the point? God's power perfected in weakness here comes the daughter. She walks up to the water. She sees this little basket. By the way, she's bathing at the river because they operate differently in that culture. But more importantly, they believe bathing in the Nile brought you a special sense of beauty and made you prolific, made you able to have kids or more kids. And so the idea was not necessarily that she probably wasn't having kids, but that she really wanted a son. Remember why? Because it's the sons in biblical times that the name carries on with. That's really still true today. It's with the sun. And so many believe that she was wanting a son. And guess who happens to float down the river? God's providential hand. So she's out there bathing, doing all of this stuff. And this was a no, there were no guys here. This was a special set up place. So that's why the sister would have been able to get close to see what was happening. Then verse seven. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Because it's not her kid, right? So she's not going to be able to nurse. So what are we going to do? Well, the sister steps in. I got a solution. Should I call a Hebrew to nurse for you? And verse, verse 8, but the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I read that fast on purpose. Did you hear that? Who got the baby? Mama, mama bear, just kidding, that point's over. Mama got him. Are you crazy? Are you kidding me? Of all the things that could have happened, the baby floats down to Pharaoh's house, the one that said to kill him and his own daughter, which would have been a risk to even think that maybe this could happen, picks him up out of the water, and, and, and the baby was what earlier? crying. You better believe that was it, man. That was what tugged on her heartstrings. 
when she heard that baby crying, maybe that motherly instinct in her began to kick in, and she grabbed that child. And once you touch a child, listen, by the way, this is a true, for, for most people that uh, give children up for adoption, if they leave the hospital with that child, most of the time they don't end up giving it after all because there's a connection that just takes place. You better believe when she picked up that child, oh, there was a connection. And so she took it, but then she had to start thinking, what am I gonna do? I, I can't nurse this kid now. On this day, she could basically have whatever she wanted. So what did they do? They called one of the Hebrew women because they knew it was one of the Hebrew children. And the sister steps in, goes and calls mom. Mom's gonna get paid for the next three to 12 years to raise her own kid. Sign me up. Right? Sarah says, I don't care. She's a good, good mom. She's gonna get paid for the next few years to watch her kid. Wow. By the way, this is really special because we don't know exactly how long. Three would have been the minimum because that's when a child at that time would be weaned off of uh, feeding from his or her mom. But 12 really would have been the age when they would have started school, which we'll learn about in just a second. And so there's a really good chance it's in the neighborhood of three to 12 years that she's gonna get to spend with her child and most likely on the later side, not the earlier side. What, a, what an unbelievable experience. Our daughter Kyla is two. Oh, gonna be two next week. I knew that, I was just kidding. Gonna be two in, in one week. Do you know how much she has learned in two years? It's unbelievable. And by next year or even this, by four, five, I can't even imagine all the things that are gonna be able to happen. Can you imagine the kind of impact she could have had on her son in those few formative years? Are you seeing God's hand through all of this? Baby down the river, Pharaoh's daughter picks it up, brings it into the home, then gives it back to mom, pays mom to take care of the kid so that he can get raised up and get the nutrition he needs, but also be taught about the one true God that he will stay faithful to all the way to the end. End. Listen, this is the only way this could happen because not only is he going to grow up in mom's home until whatever, let's just say the age of 12, then at 12, guess what's going to happen? She's going to send him back because that's what she was supposed to do and now he's going to spend age 12 on to adulthood in the Egyptian home. But in this home, he would be considered royalty because he's the son of the princess. So he's going to get all of the things that royalty would have got. He's going to have all the education. He's going to get the language. He's going to learn how to play sports with them, archery, things like that. He's going to learn about war. He's going to be raised up in all of these elements. And guess what? That is going to be the key to his leadership down the road. He would learn from the princess, math, and all of those things. But from his mom, he would learn about his God. And with the two together, he became the Moses that we'll be reading about for the next few weeks. Only God could do that. He wouldn't get the training if he stayed with mom. And he would never learn about the one true God if he was only with the princess. Wow, it's incredible, incredible. Verse 10, last part. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. When you think about, just we're in the first 10 verses, when you think about all of the moving parts that God works together 
does it give you a little encouragement that maybe some of the stuff you're going through might just be a part of a bigger plan? Can you imagine? You birth a child, you hide him for three months, you finally get to a point where you can't do it anymore, so you do what you only you know, the only thing you think you can do, but you try to protect him the best that you can. You put him in the little ark, and you float him down the river, and he just happens to land in the one place you didn't want him to go, but you didn't realize that was the one place he was actually supposed to go. And because he went not where he wanted to go or where she wanted him to go, but where he was supposed to go, he ended up getting the training he was supposed to have so that eventually he could be the leader that God needed him to be. Sounds like life, doesn't it? We just get to see his end story. We haven't seen yours yet. We have to just trust that God's working. Here's how I want to close. One big thought that I think is important to connect what Moses went through and what he's going to go through in the coming years. We're going to jump pretty far ahead in his life over the next few chapters. Moses would have grown up in that palace or that offshoot of the palace with the princess He would have had the things that royalty would have had. He would have had anything he really wanted. Yet Moses is going to stay committed to God all the way through. He's never gonna let the stuff that he has keep him there. He never gets comfortable and he never conforms to that environment. He learns from it. He grows from it. You better believe he received incredible training, but he also received some false teaching. Hey, sound like college to you? Yeah, that's what it's like. But you don't boycott college because there's a couple professors that don't believe in God. If you did, you were wrong. No, you go anyway, but you understand that I'm going to take a couple of these things with a grain of salt, but I'm receiving the education that I need. Moses is going to have that same experience. But unlike most Americans and unlike even most Christians, Moses isn't going to become comfortable with the place that he's in because he realizes that where he's going is much more important. And Christians, we've got to hear that because, listen, You and I, we're just too comfortable here. Maybe we don't have all the riches of a palace, but we sure do have a lot of stuff at our disposal. And it's pretty easy to get comfortable with this world. And as soon as you become comfortable with this world, you stop thinking about anything that waits ahead of you. And it's a challenge. And some people say, well, the Bible isn't relatable. Yeah, it is. Moses had all kinds of things, and so do we. Just go on a mission trip just across our country lines. Visit some other nations, maybe Bogota in a couple months, just saying. Visit some other nations and see what they have and what they experience, and then come back and say, hmm, we don't have anything here. I'm broke and poor. No, we are so blessed here. It's unbelievable, but we're so blessed that it becomes dangerous because we can get comfortable. And as soon as we get comfortable, we stop thinking about what's waiting ahead of us. God has called you and I to live separate. We live in the world, but we're not of the world because he has something waiting for us. You're a teacher. What a challenge with kids and with the environment you're required to work in. You're an engineer, you work in a business office, all the little shady things that are happening all around you. You're a CPA, trying to make all these, find all this money and not find it because, I mean, there's so many, there are so many things in this world that can suck us up if we're not careful. And living apart, it's easy to live with the world because that's what everybody wants you to do. 
It's easy to cut corners. It's easy to do all that because the world kind of celebrates that for you. It's the ones that stand opposite that have to go through all the trouble, even though what they're doing is the right thing. But we don't live for the now. We live for what is ahead. And that is what we've got to soak in. And I know some of you are like, I'm young, man. I'm, I'm still in school. Or I just graduated. I'm starting my career. And I got time to think about that later. No. You have time to think about it right now because you're here. These are the moments when we're forming. Moses was in his formative years there. But hey, this, our 20s is a formative time in our life. And so if you don't start living out principles that God wants you to live now, listen, it's not impossible, but you're gonna have a real hard time living it out later on. Trust me, we've seen it, so much of it, just being here for a few years. Opportunity. But then we have to step back for a moment because the reality is, if we don't have Jesus living inside of us, if he is not our Lord and Savior, you have no desire to live any other way. One day I was driving with a friend back when I was in school, and uh, he, he used to drive me to school because I would blew out my knee and so I couldn't drive. And uh, I, remember, <laughs> I remember one day I got in the car with him. He turns on his truck. We start driving, or he just turns on the truck, and all of a sudden, the music was so loud. I mean, I think it was on the highest volume. It was so loud, though. Most of the time when you have loud music, your natural reaction is just grab the dial, turn it down. The music was so loud, he didn't grab the dial. He grabbed his ears. <laughs> and I'm looking at, like, and I do it for him. And I, are you kidding me? What in the world are you doing? Can you even hear me right now? This is the loudest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I was in high school, all right? Loud music doesn't bother me. Are you kidding me? Here's the thing. How does that happen? You don't get in the car and go, full blast, let's do this. No. You hear one song, maybe at volume three. And you like that song, so you turn it up a notch. And then you listen to a couple songs, and then you hear, I love that song, that's my favorite song. And you turn it up a couple notches, and then you're jamming, and you're driving, and you're not paying attention, and you should be, feel convicted right now, that's okay. And then, you, and then the next song comes on, and that's your favorite song, because our society, we're never satisfied. So there's another, so you turn it up again. Now you're at seven or eight, and next thing you know, you get one more song, and that song came, and that was the song. You crank it up to 10, and you don't even realize how loud your music was until someone gets in the car and God bless his soul and his ears. Now, why do I tell you that? Because listen, folks, listen, don't miss this. That is exactly how sin is in our life. Man, it starts small for some of us, maybe big for others, but it just continues and continues to grow, and sometimes we don't even realize it because it's just a little thing here and just a little thing there and just a little thing there, and the next thing you know, you are in a place that not only did you not intend to be, you are embarrassed to acknowledge that you are there. Now, the reality is we all, struggle with sin. The difference is the believer in Jesus Christ doesn't run towards sin openly, doesn't say, hey, I live with my boyfriend. I don't care what you think. I don't care what the Bible says. It's just the way it is. Doesn't say, oh, I, I love weed, so I'm just going to keep smoking. But I know it's all right, but it's all right. I'll just move to Colorado. Maybe it'll be better. And you just, 
That's not a believer, at least a believer that gets it. A believer in Jesus Christ says, I'm gonna pursue the things of God. I'm gonna do whatever I can, no matter what I can, no matter how hard I can, and I know, I know that I'm gonna fall because I'm imperfect. But when I fall, I'm not gonna sit in a little pity party or say, well, that's it, I'll just go back and enjoy the things of life. No, but I'm gonna get right back up and I'm gonna say, Lord, I'm coming right back for you and I'm sorry, please forgive me. I wanna do this and I wanna do it right. Why? Because I love you and I know that you love me. Listen, the unbeliever or the believer that doesn't get it is the one that runs towards sin, doesn't think a thing about it, openly pursuing it. And you go, well, that's not me. Well, I hope it's not, but maybe you need to ask yourself about some certain categories that you filed away in the doesn't really matter zone. Because here's the thing, maybe you are a believer, and maybe you are in a season where you're pursuing sin. Listen, every time you do that, somebody's watching you. You know one of the saddest thing that happen, happens here is some of you, and I know that's me, but it's true. You walk out these doors, and you go live differently than how you put on while you're here. And you know what happens? I'm okay with you doing that. I don't like it. I don't support it. But I get it. We're all imperfect. What happens, the hard part that makes me really, really upset or angry, but whatever, is when I hear someone else say, I thought about, and this has happened before many, many times, I thought about coming to your ministry, but then I saw the people that go there and I just thought it probably wasn't a good ministry for me because I've seen the way they live out there and if that's how they live out there, I don't, I don't even wanna know what happens in here. Oh, the last eight years, that's the greatest thing you could hear, right? Oh man, working so hard, leading, trying to teach, trying to grow you guys and help you guys and yet we go out there and we live an example and we show people what not to do. Why? Because sin devours us, guys. And man, little things here and there and here and there. And the next thing you know, you're in a place you didn't want to be in. You didn't mean to. You weren't trying to, but you're there. Because you didn't choose to stop and say, God, show me what you want me to do. Give me a vision bigger than just trying not to sin. Let me chase after you. Because here's the reality. If you actually will choose to take your life and pursue God, you don't have to worry about trying to stop this sin and trying to stop that sin. You will naturally realize that this stuff just doesn't go with this guy, so I'm gonna let this stuff go so I can follow him. And you're not gonna be perfect, because none of us are, and neither am I. But you'll look a lot different. Let me tell you, my life now, compared to eight years ago, it's a whole nother story. Fat people still don't believe it happened. Because only God can do that. Here's the last thing I want you to hear. So today, I was sitting at home with my daughter, Kyla, and she was crying. It was time to put her down for a nap. I think she thought she might have been in trouble. I don't know, but she didn't want to go down. She's crying, she's crying, she's crying. And so I, I like to be the hero dad. Sarah hates this, but this is what happens. I like to be the hero dad, so I wait till all things are bad, and then I step in, and I'm like, yeah, save the day. So I did that today as well, 10 for 10. But anyways, so I step in, I grab her, I take her into her room, and I sit on the little recliner or couch thing that we have in there to rock her. And, and she's crying, and she starts to calm down. And I, and I say this to her all the time, but I wanted to, I just wanted her to know that I love her. And so I told her that I love her. And she didn't say anything. She's two. <laughs> and I'm looking at her, and I'm like, but Kyla, I love you. And listen, when I say I love you to my daughter, it comes from a place that you, you really won't understand until you have kids. But just trust me, it, it means a lot more than when I say 
I love you. And I, and I love all of y'all, I do. But it's just different. When I tell my daughter that I love her and I'm looking at her and holding her, it comes from a place that I can't describe. But it is a love that deserves a response. Now wait, I'm not trying to be mean here. And I'm looking at her and I'm going, I just, just smile. Just say something. Look at me. Give me a thumbs up. Whatever you'll do, just tell me that you understand that I'm not just saying this, but this is real. It's from my gut. It's from my inside. It is everything I have that I truly, genuinely love you. And she didn't say anything. And then it hit me. It hit me. I'm looking at her. And I'm going, why in the world is she not, does she understand? Does she understand how much I love her? And then it dawned on me that God has got to ask himself the same question about so many of us. I have given you everything. I have made a way for you. And I love you. I love you in a way you can't even understand. loves you. We don't live a life of trying not to sin so that we can get his love. That life, that obedience is a response because of the love he has for us. Moses was drawn out of the water. God has extended his hand through Jesus to draw you out of this world of sin and to bring you into a place of hope. I hope you've done something with that because that kind of love deserves a response. And maybe at two, Kyla didn't get it, but at 20-something, we should. It deserves a response.